Buddhang namang sanghang namasami namatu acharya sati <clears throat> The uh, last thing that I uh, chant is uh, namatu, which is namas, namatu is to namasagan, to revere, to uh, hold up, elevate pay respect to Acharyati, Acharya, one's teacher, and uh, Venerable Ajahn Liam, who's now um, uh, Lumpa Liam, getting on in years, who is one of uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah's uh, kind of right-hand monks. And uh, he always used to chant that, and I always liked it, because it can be to the great teacher of the Buddha, or it can be to the teacher, the one's immediate teacher. Uh, so I always liked that. Ajahn Chah used to do another one that I wanted to memorize before I came, but I didn't get that together. So, <clears throat> But in saying that, um, one of the things that Ajahn Rao and I spoke about was that people perhaps would be uh, interested in uh, my experience with... Uh, Lumpocha in Thailand and uh, my uh, intimate relationship that I had with him in his uh, waning phases of his uh, deterioration, not to his death, but uh, prior to that. So what I'd like to do is um, make an effort to uh, weave some of these things together my memory is um, vague in some situations, but I've been reflecting on this and kind of some stories and things have been coming up. So uh, that's what I would like to uh, to speak about this evening. <clears throat> His first trip to this country, as many of you may know, was in 1977, accompanied by uh, Lupa Sumedho. And uh, then that time, as you probably heard the history and Ajahn uh, repeated it some and things where they, the monks actually ended up staying. Ajahn Chah returned to, uh, to Thailand. And Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Anando, Viradhamma, Kemadhamma stayed on. And I was then the abbot at Wat Bananachat in, in Thailand, the International Forest Monastery. And so kind of life went on for a year or so and we would hear news of England and how it was going and uh, through either uh, letters or people coming and going between the, the two countries. And <clears throat> my <clears throat> memory of this trip in 1979, which I think is a good starting point, uh, I was invited to accompany him to come along as his attendant and translator and uh, be with him 
during that uh, visit in uh, May and June of 1979. So our first stop was uh, Chithurst, and Chithurst was in the very early days. It was still quite a mess, and uh, things had not been uh, at all. I mean, rooms had been prepared, and of course there was a lot of preparation for his uh, his visit. But uh, I remember it was May, so it was still cold as it can be here. And I think one of the first incidents <laughs> that I recall is they decided to light a fire in the kind of reception room. I don't know what it's called now, but you know, for to keep him warm. And this uh, gentleman that had owned the Chithurst house prior to that was a miser, and he had just collected everything. Some of you maybe say uh, saw the film "The Buddha Comes to Sussex," and if you haven't, it's quite entertaining uh, to watch. But along with not throwing away anything from a newspaper to bottles and just you name it, um, he hadn't had the chimneys cleaned. So they light up this roaring kind of fire in the reception room and sudden people are noticing more smoke than should be uh, appropriate <laughs> for a fire. And the, well, the chimney had caught fire, so the fire I called the fire brigade and they come and put the hoses down the chimney, and it was quite an exciting event. So he was pretty uh, entertained by it all, I think. And so it all happened without incident. Nobody got hurt, and nothing really got damaged that much. And I think from then on out, they uh, cleaned the chimneys before they lit any more fires. One of the themes that uh, during that trip that is really a, a, a striking and, and that I remember, recollect very clearly, is his emphasis, um, as we've uh, <coughs> been talking and, uh, and earlier the, today, I, didn't, I remember I was talking about the five precepts. And he was almost hammering these precepts uh, at people, not in a preachy way, but really emphasizing the importance of uh, virtuous conduct, of uh, body and speech, being uh, uh, virtuous, being uh, skillful, being not harmful. And it's really, uh, the, the five precepts really uh, boil down to how you and I behave and manifest what we say and what we do. So not to harm, not to take things which are not given. So those are physical. The third sexual misconduct, that's also physical. And then the fourth, of course, is frivolous or um, lying, fundamentally lying. So that's to do with speech. And then final with drug and drink, anything that would lead you and I to heedlessness. And certainly from my experience with drugs or drink, that it was much easier to be heedless and careless and perhaps break one of the other precepts, do something very foolish when one was under the influence of a drug or drink. So he was very emphatic with this, and I believe he also saw that that here um, people were very uh, interested in uh, in meditation uh, and Buddhism. Can I have a little bell and bell stick, please? If you'd be so kind, Ajahn Bodhipalma, are you can you relinquish that for me? Thank you. Much obliged. And um, so he's, uh, he, he saw that genuine interest to practice, which
which of course Asian Buddhists and, and Thailand to speak specific Thais were not so interested in meditation. Their primary uh, function they saw was dana to to give support to monks, put food in the bowl, and they were quite happy to do that. But he saw here that that people were really very uh, keen on practice, but that they might not see sila. So sila. Uh, often practices be described, and I don't know any uh, sutta, scriptural uh, resource for this, Ajanamarome, uh, or I'm not sure, but we talk about dana, sila, and bhavana. And that was a, a great emphasis in, in Thailand, and he really um, spoke about it uh, along with that. So dana, of course, we know is uh, the act of giving and of generosity, of giving a part of oneself, either monetarily or a more personal way to prepare food, as people like to do, and come to offer to the community to share a part of one's self. And of course, when we cook and put love and energy, it's a really a lovely thing to make that offering to uh, give. And then sila is our, uh, is our precepts, uh, and the five precepts for people in everyday uh, life, and to live and to be able to live in, har in harmony to not harm each other and to uh, behave in ways that are unskillful, either by body or speech. And ultimately, by restraining body and speech, we begin to restrain the mind, understand the mind more, because it's the mind that is always uh, the culprit, isn't it? Before I say or do something, I always, it has, it is, uh, the precursor is thought and intention, volition, even if it's uh, somewhat unconscious. So he would emphasize that. And then the third was bhavana. And bhavana usually uh, translate as the action of, of practice, the actual application of the teaching. So the three were complementary. And so he always carried a cane. And, uh, and uh, so he would pick up his cane and he says, Tansin bhavana, mungap mai tao ni, tajap tong ni, yok mot. So translates as, if you need a translation, he said, it didn't matter what part of the, this cane or this piece of wood here, this our little bell stick, you picked up that the other two were connected to it. So you couldn't just pick up the middle without the ends, or you couldn't pick up the end without the middle and the other end, and so on. So dana, sila, bhavana were, 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 were intimately, they were interconnected. And so the emphasis, well, okay, maybe we want a bhavana. Everybody wants to bhavana, so I want to practice. Yes, Venerable Master, I want to practice meditation for enlightenment. But then he would say, what about your precepts? And so precepts was the one kind of that, that the Thais and Westerners had in common, that they, they were a little bit weary to like want to have to kind of have rules, you know, to go against. Like, and sometimes some of the monks would teach like, well, if you can't keep five, keep four. <laughs> if you can't keep four, try to keep three. You know, so we're, we're going downhill real quick, and of course you can't do three, two, and ultimately, well, can you keep one precept? Maybe just don't kill people, you know, don't hurt, don't hurt anything. And, uh, and if you can't keep one of the five, then uh, maybe if you can come to the monastery occasionally, you know, that might be. And of course, for, for simple village folk, that was quite difficult, say the first precept, not harming as much as their livelihood. I mean, they, if it moved, they ate it. 
and I don't mean that in any kind of demeaning or criti critical way, but that life was very sparse, and, and so they had their rice paddies, what uh, things they could grow, and the Northeast was very known for being very sparse and hard to, to grow and cultivate things. So that you know, fish and whatever seasonal things they had, they would they would catch and and eat, and so that was uh, was part of their way of life. So the precepts they couldn't, but they could do dana. They could do the giving, and so it's lovely to see now that like here in this country we have the three. I think manifesting much more. We have people who are already interested in practice, but one can't really begin to practice and not start to realize, well, my, beha my everyday behavior is impacted. So if I've done something before I come on a retreat that was unskillful and harmful or unkind in any way, then most likely, as we've been reflecting on things beyond uh, in other uh, parts of our lives, that that's going to kind of come up and, and um, kind of plague our mind states. It's going to be a, an agitation, a concern so that the impeccability that is expected of a monastic, that you and I are required to keep a certain impeccability in our, in our lives as well, what we say, what we do, and ultimately what we think. So I remember traveling to, uh, being here, and uh, it was hard. It was hard being here because I was American and I hadn't come here to live yet, but I was very self-conscious of my American accent, and of course, I'd never, I knew a few English people in, in, in Thailand, but I was here and surrounded by the English. You know, so it was quite intimidating for me. You know, everybody was speaking like English English, like proper English, Queen's English, whatever. I hear these accents and pronunciations and everything. And, and I knew that I was very self-conscious of my uh, American accent, but I did, you know, did the best that I could in translating him. Sometimes he would be very emphatic with the precepts, and, uh, and I didn't submit it, and I used to chuckle about this, because he would say things like, it, to ties, it would be very direct, and uh, could be coarse, but not intended to be coarse for coarse sake, but just, you know, kind of the way it is. And so, especially the third precept around sexuality, sexual misconduct, um, sometimes that would be very difficult, the things that he would say, which I still would find difficult to try to find a a kind of a, a uh, diplomatic, if you will, <laughs> translation of some of the things that he said. But that being the, the case, that there was this emphasis. So here, then we went to America and, and, and had these, um, uh, he continued to, to emphasize that and, and how important it was. And, and, and during that time, he had the cane, and so he was beginning to talk about his instability, physical instability. He began to be feel unstable on his feet, and have uh, you know, some mild dizzy spells and so on. Uh, and he really uh, valued me being with him because I was big, I was strong, uh, strong, much stronger at that time. But that he kind of felt comfortable with me, rather than a you know a little time out going along with him. That you know if he fell or whatever, that I could uh, you know probably um, you know help him, support him. So. Uh, so it was a great, great honor for me to uh, to have that uh, that opportunity. And there were memory, many uh, memorable uh, occasions. And uh, I've never told this story publicly, and I wasn't sure if I would. And, and I haven't told it that many times privately. 
And now that I've opened my mouth, I just wondered if I should have, but... <laughs> you know, we're going to have to have a, like a timeout. I'm going to consult with Ajahn if I should actually tell this story or not. It will be a, it will be modified for general consumption. Because <laughs> um, it requires revealing a bit about myself. And, and so I, uh, I, uh, I think that's important for me. And not in like, you know, I have to confess this or whatever, but that to be real with you and the experiences that I shared with him and had with him, because there was always love and kindness there. So we got to our place in the, uh, in, we went to stay with my family after being here, then we went to Berry Mass, they had a retreat in his uh, honor, Jack Cornfield was there and several others, and you know, it was a lovely time, lovely retreat, people really appreciated him, and then we traveled to see my family. And, and the first story, um, was 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 quite sweet because my mother had visited uh, her and my father had visited me in Thailand, but I hadn't seen my grandmother, and uh, so arriving in Seattle, and John uh, and I and you know, have our gear and everything, our kit, as they say here, getting off the plane, and my mother was very clear with my grandmother, her mother that, you know, he's, you know, he's now a monk and things, and he has these rules, so, you know, so you definitely can't, you know, touch him, you know, that's not appropriate, you know, and so she was very emphatic with that, with my grandmother, so we get out, and we come through the gates, and, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, there we are, there's my family, my father, father, and my mother, and my grandmother, and we're, you know, kind of walking out, and my grandmother just goes ahead of everybody. She comes right up to me. And she just embraces me. So I've got this grandmother in my arms, and you know Ajahn Chah over here, and I think I probably had his bag that I was carrying, and I just looked over and I says, "This is Granny." <laughs> and then, and then at that same time, my mother comes up, "Mother, I told you you couldn't touch him." So she was like jealous because, you know, she couldn't come over and hug me. So you know, there was rather a tense moment of which Ajahn Chah found very amusing. So he would tease me about that, you know, the, 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 uh, the hugging grandmother. And one of my favorite places and, and still is on the, on the earth is uh, Stevens Pass, which is in the Cascade Mountain Range in, uh, in uh, Washington State, where I grew up in Seattle. And so we had a ski cabin in the mountains on this pass, and uh, my parents had actually purchased it when I was a young, when I was in the military, and uh, so it was a lovely place. It was right on a river in the mountains, and so we took him up there, and I remember walking with him, and and uh, and he said, Ah, Niku Patata, you know, this is real woods, real forest, you know, because it was in the mountains and the fresh air and everything. It was just a, a gorgeous, lovely place. And so we settled in to, uh, to stay, and then the cabin next door to ours, because uh, my parents were up there, and they, had, um, they were letting us use our Ajahn Chah, and then Paul Brider was there, and we were staying. And 
um, one of my struggles as a, as a monk, of course, was around sexuality and uh, that we all have our, our struggles and it was certainly one that was, was difficult for me for living a celibate life. And um, so I remember, you know, I had memories of my father and he had a barber shop and, you know, he had, you know, certain things around the barber shop for, for men. And so when we were up at the cabin, I was kind of, I, and, and this is the other piece that was interesting. He, he was talking about like how in Western society, he said, you know, they're kind of like, and, and it had to do with precepts and virtue and things that, that you know, people were, were getting, you know, more and more kind of reckless and uh, that, they, that they were, um, um, uh, you know, like exposing themselves, you know, and shorter pants and, you know, shorter shirts and, you know, exposing more and more skin and, you know, just kind of this, this what he saw as just a kind of a, because in Thailand, of course, everybody's proper. You never expose really any part of your, of your body, you know, above the knees, male and, and female in, in, in many ways. And so he says, pretty soon he says, Mop, I want Mop. You know, they're going to take everything off, you know. Everybody running around naked, you know. You know, that was just kind of his way of saying. So, being young and still being quite deluded, I had a certain curiosity about kind of what that mot meant for, you know, Western culture. So I happened to come across some of my father's playboys in the cabin. <laughs> and uh, this is like really playing with fire for a, a monk. I mean, like serious fire. And so I found these playboys and of course, <laughs> there they were. And he had quite a stack of them. And so I flipped through a few, a few uh, through a few of them and, uh, you know, very unskillful. But I hadn't done anything really serious. I hadn't, you know, broken any, but, you know, it wasn't really appropriate. And couldn't imagine, you know, the Thai people coming in. Yeah, I was looking at some you know, pornographic material last night. And so, but the next morning, I said to him, I says, it's happened, I said. And I was curious partly, too, because, well, uh, you know, bef in my day, they weren't, you know, kind of totally exposing themselves, these, these uh, de de degrading magazines that men would, would uh, you know, flock after. And these they had, so, you know, women were totally naked. And I said, well, it's happened, I said. You know, they've, they're totally exposing themselves. Said, what do you mean? And I said, well, and my dad has some magazines here. Well, wh what magazines? <laughs> so I got my foot in my mouth big time now. So, so I said, well, they're in the other room. He says, I'm a bung. You know, bring them here. Let me have a look. I'm a bung. You know, that's like loud for, you know, let's have a look. So I didn't want to grab the whole stack, you know. So I, I think I grabbed two or three. So I handed him one respectfully, you know, here's the great master, you know, poor boy. And I didn't want to like, you know, here's the good one. You know? I'm glad this is going fairly well, because I was quite nervous about this. So he flips it open and, you know, it didn't take him long to kind of get to the, the pictures of, of young women exposing themselves. And 
you know, and he gets to the to the centerfold and you know opens it up and. <laughs> flips through and then at one point he says like a monkey and then he said then he threw it down like in disgust and he says bite so he threw this magazine down and he said go just in a bite he's just we're going to go so he got up and we walked and he was very kind of you know in a space that I just was like oh what have I done you know but he asked you know and they're like I wasn't sure what was going to happen so we're walking in the woods, and it's gorgeous and everything. And of course, I'm just vibrating with this playboy, and I've just given it to the great master. And you know, what's going to happen next? You know, if I would have died then, I don't know where I'd been reborn. You know. <laughs> in Hugh Hefner's mansion. In Hugh Hefner's mansion. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so we came back and he didn't say anything best of I can recall he didn't say anything and of course it was a gorgeous day up in the mountains and we sat like our meal we were having on the river bank right in front of the cabin and this gorgeous river flowing mountains across and it was just gorgeous and then he started talking he said he said, uh, well, he said, I was really disgusted. He wasn't disgusted and like, this is disgusting. But he was so, it was so shocking to him to see that people would do that. So he saw it as very degrading, as of course it is. And so it really, it was very powerful for him. Of course, when he was looking at the centerfold, when I was looking at the centerfold, we're totally two different universes. And... So he had, he had seen this just for what, what it was and, and, and was very, you know, upset. And he said, uh, and, and, and he was talking, and, and then this car pulls up. And it was like a minivan. And there were like a, 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 a car full, maybe four or five, not a lot, of people that had seen him and heard him talk in the city. And they had come up to give food. And he says, who's that? And I says, oh, that's some of the people that had come to your talk. I had come to, to make an offering. And he looks over at me and he says, he says, you know, I was ready to go back. You know, he said. And then he saw these people. So it was almost like that moment the Buddha saw that there are people with but little dust in their eyes. And he started laughing. And then I started laughing. And we just started having this belly laugh together at the bank of this river, this beautiful mountain. We just, <laughs> just, you know, it's just this, this moment of like these two kind of extreme, you know, one on one hand, this kind of hopelessness of humanity and just degraded and, and indulgent. And then here are the people that have but little dust in their eyes. So that was a, that was a very um, powerful moment for me and how that happened, and obviously for him, that he saw there there was there was something there that this was worthwhile. And I don't think he would, literally would have picked up, but he was his heart felt like, you know, why bother? 
you know, this is kind of... And he wasn't like, said the whole society is like this, but he just saw one element that really he found very, very shocking. So fast forward a little bit in the... Um, uh, with the, the, the time we... Uh, so the rest of the, the trip was, uh, uh, was very wonderful to be with my family and for them to be able to honor them and, and be in our, our, our home and stuff. And I feel that you know, my father's suicide years later was uh, very influenced, not his suicide, but that he had met this great master. And, and uh, I know when I'd been home previous to that, I mean, they already know how to bow, they'd been to Thailand. So my father was like very proud, like when we'd visit, he says, well, this is what you're supposed to do with him. So right in front of his friends and everything, I was there sitting, and he'd get down on his hands and knees and do this perfect prostration. He says, well, this is how you show respect. And, you know, I was like, wow. And, of course, they had no, no uh, reservation uh, about doing that, learning that in Thailand. One other poignant moment was my father was out working, and he was not quite as big as me, but he was very uh, German, German descent, you know, stocky, strong man. And he was out working around. He loved to putter around this cabin. So he's out moving these big stones, you know, and Ajahn Chah and I've been walking, so we come back and and here's my dad. His name was Norm. And uh, and so Ajahn Chah called him Paul Norm. Paul is like father, so Father Norm, which is in the villages, everybody that it was kinda like aunt and uncle, you know, aunties and uncles that would be, you know, you know, Uncle Michael and and you know Auntie uh, Ruki and, and so on. They would you know, and so he says, Paul Norm Kang Lang, no? You know, he says, Norm, says, you're, you're very strong. And, you know, my dad was kind of, you know, yeah, you know, I like to, you know, work and everything. And he's sweating and everything. And he says, Dad, don't come jitjai kang lang mung lang gai. He says, but you have to make your heart as strong as your body. And my dad just kind of whimpered a little bit, you know, almost like he just went right to without, he wasn't intimidated or anything, just said, yeah, this is what you need to do. And he was just, oh, you're right. You know, so he, he, he saw that. So it was this kind of very teachable moment. You know, of course, as his son, I couldn't do that. <laughs> and he said to me, when we got, he says, hands off, the parents, leave them to me. You know, I'll take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even think about it. You know, that's, that's, that's my job. And he was, he was very... Uh, very kind and, and giving appropriate teachings, which he, which he could. So we got back, I want to fast forward a, a little bit, we got back to Thailand and I, I mentioned, I think that I, that's when I went off and uh, he gave me the opportunity to go off and live on my own in a cave. And uh, I got into this cave and, which is a very, uh, very trying time. And my, my, my vow in the cave, my aditana, my resolution was that Unless something other than my own desire came along, that I would not leave this cave. So something, and people knew where I was. I mean, it wasn't wise to go wandering off and not let somebody know where you were and how you could be. Like, it could get a hold of you. I mean, you could do it, but it wasn't the, the wisest thing to do. And and so uh, I spent that four months, you know, alone in this incredible cave. I mean, it was not like this dark kind of, it was just huge. It was at the top of kind of a, a, a mountain. 
and you know it had open spaces and it had closed spaces and the wind blew through and it was really a lovely place but it really kind of um, uh, uh, you know kicked me about in a way I'd never been kicked about and that's partly why I did it and that's really another story but what's interesting as I was going through this is that I, w I was struggling and the end of the range retreat came and and but I was determined that I was going to stay well lo and behold uh, a uh, one of these uh, aerograms that you they had these aerograms you know they folded in three so the cheapest way to send um, uh, news home or wherever and of course those of us that were sending these things home I know uh, you know Jan Santa will remember <laughs> that you could spend you could get an incredible amount one if you wrote small so you know our parents were really struggled we're sitting there and you know maybe two or three or four days or a week and we're kind of writing this you know you need a magnifying glass but you could get all this great information and one of these aerograms folded up and off it would go and it was very inexpensive well, I got a telegram. Well, I don't think it was an aerogram, maybe just a postcard letter. Well, Ajahn Sumido's coming to visit, you know, from England. Oh, Ajahn Sumido's coming. You know, he'll definitely want to see me. <laughs> I need to be there, you know. He'd want me to be there. So I think that was my own desire that took me out of the cave, but it was enough to uh, send me out of there because I was definitely, had suffered enough as a case was. Um, so I came back, and then I came back to Watvapong. And so I'd been away about a year and a half, I guess, since the trip. You know, I was getting close to 19, it was, would have been 1979, so getting close to, I guess, 80, late 8, 1980. When I just came on, if you remember the year, but he'd come for a visit. Early 81, was it? Yeah. So I came back to Watvapong, and his health was, was deteriorating, but he was still himself, he was still in good shape, you know, a little bit more feeble, but, and was taking some medications, and of course, when you're a great teacher like that, I mean, there's doctors just want to help and give medications and everything. And so it was appropriate, and, and, and in ways, in, in, in all fairness to me, that as I came back, I mean, there was help needed and things around uh, him and his health. And so he, excuse me, Ajahn Sumedha's visit, and then it was coming close to the rains retreat, which is like July, August, September, or late June, early July, August, September, when the rains come in Thailand. Of course, that's the time where we enter the traditional vasa, the rains retreat, uh, which dates from the time of the Buddha. The rains not appropriate to be kind of walking and doing wandering and stay in one place. And that was our, uh, what's kind of come be, become the winter retreat here, although they still observe the wasa. And as his, he, he was, his health was, was deteriorating, and so it, it, it was decided in that, um, that he needed some rest time. Both he decided and was open to actually taking some rest time, because it was hard for him to, to do that, because he was so giving. So we went up to uh, Tomsang Pet, which is a cave of diamond light, where my little story about the, uh, the cave of diamond light LSD trip happened that I shared yesterday or day before. I can't be responsible for when I said what. <laughs> Everything starts to <laughs> come together uh, or blend together in, in the context of a retreat. So, and Kun Yingdon was who was a very wealthy supporter 
of his, a Chinese woman, very a lovely woman. And she had built this big, beautiful uh, sala open-air pavilion on the top of, of uh, Tum Seng Pet, of the you know, cave of the Diamond Light Monastery. And then had built this, this um, very lovely kuti uh, for him. So it was on, uh, it had a big veranda so people could sit there and, and come to visit. And then had a private quarters, was right there, but it was kind of all inside with screen, uh, mosquito screen and, and windows and a loo was there. And so it had everything that he needed, a little kitchen and was really built very, very nicely. And um, so, and he had, so he had me go up there. I'm not sure who else was there at the time for Western monks, but I was kind of more and more becoming kind of his personal attendant. And this is, I think, where it ties into our aging and choices and things, and which I'll try to, um, uh, you know, kind of weave into this because it's it realize how relevant it was in many ways, but unique because we're talking about you know a great master and a you know different situation, but still someone who's respected your love and and certain decisions that he's making or others are making. So one evening. So we would stay and, and people would come and visit. And so it was my job to be the bad guy. You know, I had to say, well, now it's time for him to rest. And, and the ties are not like if they show up, and this is what he would normally do, and this is part of the reason for his deteriorating health. They show up and he's just about ready. He'd been sitting there for two or three hours or longer. hadn't even, you know, got up to relieve himself. And somebody else would show up and he might just sit back down. And he could sit for hours and just be with people and talk and converse. I mean, just this incredible presence and energy. But, you know, it had an impact. I mean, an impact. A physical body can only take so much. So I started to regulate that. Of course, that wasn't very popular, you know. He was always very accessible. And now this big Western monk, you know, is going to say, no, <laughs> rest time. But I rest time. <laughs> and, and that's what I had to do, and I knew it, and I didn't like doing it, but I was willing to do it because I was trying to care for him as best as I could. And one evening, we were sitting there, and, and we, had we had discovered uh, cocoa, black, just, just dark, dark chocolate cocoa. We already could have sugar, so cocoa we could have. And then we discovered coffee mate. And so, you know, the, the community looked at Coffee Mate and does it have anything and this whole thing that the uh, Sangha can go through to decide whether this is allowable, allowable to have in the evening. We could have sugar. So Coffee Mate, like cocoa, sugar, Coffee Mate and hot water made this, you know, for a month that doesn't get hardly anything in the evening, made this delicious chocolate drink. Of course, we all know now Coffee Mate is pretty you know, rancid kind of stuff. There's not a lot of good things in it. And he couldn't say coffee mate, so he called it a communist. <laughs> so one evening, it was Guy, I think, that was there. Anagarika Guy, or, you know, Summoner Guy, if I remember. I don't know if I didn't send remembers. Anyway, um, so we're sitting there one evening, and, and it's just the monks, just a handful of us, myself. And he says to the summoner, he says, make me a communist. That sounds really funny, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, in other words, make me a chocolate drink, but communist, you know, that's all the ingredients and everything. So I give him his communist, and he's sitting there and <laughs> sipping it. And it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's still, it's quiet. 
the top of this mountain, you look up and it's just like you're in the middle of the universe. It's just the stars are so amazing, you know, it's, it's just really, so it's still, there's a breeze usually on top of this. You know, so it's really lovely, a lovely place to, to be. And it was Ajahn Sumedho's favorite place, you know, as a monastery. So he's sitting there sipping. And as we did, I mean, these were some of the most special times to be with him and just quiet and just being in his presence and no, you know, nobody to be and nowhere to go. It was just, it was, it was wonderful. And he says, Sabai no, Babakaro. Yes, we're pretty contented, right? Babakaro. I said, Kapum, Lumpa, you know, respectfully saying, yes, you know, Lumpa. Kat yang We're missing one thing. I look up at him and I said, Ben yang Lumpa, you know, what? Puying. Women. <laughs> Everything was perfect, you know, but we're still missing something. Women. We need women. And of course, I knew he didn't say, well, you know, let's see if we can arrange something. <laughs> but it was, and it might have been very directed, as I'm sure. Santa Chito and Ajanamuro were kind of chuckling, especially after now I've revealed the Playboy story, so that it was directed for me a lot. But, but it was so it was so lovely because only he could say that, and it was like it was kind of like that. That here's life at its best, really. I mean, what more could one ask for? You have this beautiful place; it's peaceful and it's still. But then the mind can say, "Well, you know, if it was different, and you know." So it was so funny because he just could be just so direct. Kad yang diel, you know what's that? Women, you know we're missing one thing, and he just, Poof. and we kind of chuckled, and he laughed, and everybody <coughs> laughed, and kind of passed. That rains retreat, he started to go down, you know, fairly quickly, and he was. Uh, I, I, I would travel with him. He had a minivan that was given to him by this, this supporter, and he wanted to travel to all of his main branch monasteries, all of his senior monks, because there had been an incident with one of his senior monks that was very controversial, that he had actually um, you know, had intercourse with, this, uh, with a village woman. And so had, there had been all this uproar and everything, and that had kind of passed. But it was still reverberating through the, 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 the community. And so he uh, wanted to travel to all of his monastery, all of the branch monasteries, and just it was like he was putting his affairs in order, and that's where I started to realize how relevant this was, because he knew, I believe he knew that how his health was, the direction his health was going, and this was very important, the things that he had to say, and because this was so, you know, such a severe kind of. Uh, um, incident that had been accused of this one of his closest most senior disciples and I remember the going over there with him to the monastery before we got up to the to cave of the diamond light and everybody was looking to him to like make a decision you know let's let's uh, you know you decide you know if he's guilty or not 
So uh, there was the whole village, it was big, you know, big turnout, all these people. And we show up and he gets up onto the Dhamma seat. And, you know, he said, uh, he said uh, you know, you've invited me here to, uh, um, you know, make a decision between, you know, this Ajahn and this village woman. He said, I said, I can't do that. There's two people that know, and there's only two people that know. He says, I know where mine's been, or hasn't been. So in other words, you know, he knew he'd been restrained, had not in any way been inappropriate. So he's very direct, and so there's two people that know. I can't make a decision. I can't decide this matter for you. These two people know and only know. So if they're guilty or not guilty, that has to be decided by them. So he really, he was not going to come in there and say, you know, make a decision or point in a certain direction. So they have to. And so he was also saying, you know, they have, they have to live with this action if, in fact, it is true. And he couldn't really know that. And he wasn't trying to really know it, although I think he knew so as we visited these monasteries, that was one of the issues that came up. And of course, the senior monks, these senior monks were all disciples and had known each other. So this issue came up. And what was very interesting is that he knew that, um, that they would be struggling with this. And that he wanted to, it was almost like a warning that this is possible. So he wasn't saying he did it, he didn't do it, because he didn't know that, and he wasn't going to take on that kind of, you know, wait for somebody else. That wasn't his karma. That was these two people's karma that were, you know, uh, potentially had, had done, had, had this uh, incident. But he really emphasized that this was possible and that these are kind of things that, you know, could start happening, that to be careful that, and so the, the whole context now, years later, and, and this isn't the first time I've had the reflection, but really the first time that I've had the opportunity and felt appropriate to, to share this. And one other thing he said that was very, very powerful, he said about this teacher, he says, you know, this monk is, a, is capable of killing somebody. He just said it. And I just remember it so distinctly. And this woman and this monk, this woman was actually murdered. And as far as I know, he did, he actually killed her. And was eventually disrobed, put into jail and everything. And so I remember this warning that he was capable of, it, of this. And it was the one monastery, one senior monk that he never let any of us go to spend time with, which is very interesting. So you just kind of see the complexity of this, this relationship and things. So to all these monasteries, he was just, he was like giving his final kind of instructions almost and, 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 and things to, you know, be that you'll have to take care of things. Although he wasn't saying it, but as I can fast forward in my own mind, see that he was putting certain affairs in order. And, and, and I was kind of the one person that was with him through all of the, this, this whole kind of time period. And that the message stayed uh, the same, to to not like accuse, but just kind of warn this 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 monk is probably not so stable, and and I remember he was when I'd see him around Lumpa Cha, he was there was a certain dis disrespect, and there had been an incident years earlier where 
Um, he was angry with Ajahn Chah for having said something, and he actually supposedly had a knife and was going to make, like, you know, Angulimana, make an attempt on the master's life. And his disciples, not Ajahn Chah, but this other monk's disciples actually knew of this, were very frightened, so they were, like positioned themselves between this monk and, and Ajahn Chah. And I only heard this story, but so there was something you know, really deeply karmic kind of connection here with him and this, this particular month and how things kind of unfolded. I'm not terribly clear, you know, kind of after that rains retreat and, and this traveling around and things. And um, what I do remember, it was, it was, became very clear that I was to be with him. There was, uh, um, we, we developed this ability to be very sensitive to uh, in being invited or not. So like when the rains retreat would be coming close, monks would be going to various places. And he said, well, where do you want to go? And everybody would always, you know, where do you want to go? depends on you, wherever you choose. And so we wouldn't make that decision, you know, we let, we, we, we kind of humbled ourselves to, you, you know, wherever you might, we not, might be needed. I'll stay here if you want to send me off to, you know, the most remote place where they just eat, you know, plain rice and, and dung beetles or whatever, I'll go. You know, we kind of, that was the, that the, you know, the humility that we gave. So it was the same thing in going with him as he traveled, because it was a great honor and it was kind of a coveted position. You know, monks are human beings like everybody else, so to actually be his attendant. So I never assumed that I would go with him. I, I never assumed that. And, uh, but he'd always say, you know, get your stuff ready. We're going to, you know, Wat Kun or, you know, or Bunkaluang or wherever, this monastery, that monastery. So one day he hadn't said anything. So I had all this, I'd always prepare his stuff. Had his bowl robe, he was all robed up, ready to go, and I just came and put his bowl in. He looks at me and says, How about you say, where's your bowl? You know, I hadn't prepared anything because he hadn't said anything. And I, and I said, Well, I hadn't prepared. He says, Get it. So from then on, I knew. It was just there was, there was a message in that that I knew if he went, then I went, that he wanted me with him, that I, didn't, I could assume. You know, it, was a, it was a very poignant moment for me and a, a, great, a great honor. A lot happened from there until his uh, severe deterioration, uh, until he, he couldn't speak. And you know, as far as words, verbal words, you know, I believe I was with him when his last words, which was you know, no great kind of proclamation or anything, because I certainly don't remember him speaking a after that particular time. But uh, came to the point where we went down for this surgery, and that was one of the most difficult times. And because of this dizziness and, and things that he was having, that the doctors uh, that he was seeing at the time felt that he had uh, hydrocephalus, which is you know, water on the brain. And they would uh, insert us, that it was suggested that he have a stunt inserted. So a stunt is really, it's, a, it's just a little pump that they insert into a part of the brain. I think it's a fairly common surgery. And then they ran the tube down. I forget they went in through his, where they went in through the stomach. the stomach, yeah, and put this. But I think it, there wasn't any scarring. The scar was on his head. Back through, yeah, and they shoved it right down through into where, so when you pumped it, it was just this little pump, you know, and it would pump. The, the, the idea was to take the excess water, which they felt was putting pressure on the brain and causing a dizziness and stuff. So this was quite controversial. And, and there were a lot of people that didn't agree and were worried and all of that. 
And so it put me in a very precarious situation because I was with him and doing my absolute best to honor his wishes. So it comes in, Gregor, with your question and things. And so um, it, was a, it was an incredible amount of pressure that I, I am able to kind of um, acknowledge now. But at the time, I, mean, I was just there and doing the best that I could. And my primary concern was like, what did he want? You know, that was the word. And I, if I had to be a jerk, you know, a bad monk and say no or keep people away, I would do it. You know, if that's what he really wanted. And that was what's needed for his health. Because my intention was to protect him, to care for him, to do the absolute best I could for that. And that was one of the reasons. Because no Thai monk could go, go out and kind of tell peop turn Thai people away. Just what, it's not going to happen. The culturally, it was just so um, taboo. Know, to, to do that, and they, they wouldn't do it. And so there was a lot of like, you know, where they should have this, and people worried, you know, they're going to be punching a hole in his brain, and I mean, people were really pretty freaked out. And I was with him, and we're there, and just, you know, a day or so before the surgery, and uh, he just said, you know what? It's my brain. <laughs> my head. <laughs> you know? Doctors say it will help. So his, his intention was, all right, if this would help and that he could live on longer and, and have, so he, he made that, that decision. And, and so the surgery went forward and it was quite sweet, really. He, he said he wanted to be warned before um, he went into surgery about the anesthesia. You know, he was going to like fight the anesthesia. You know, he was going to like see if he could you know, not go asleep. So afterwards, Johnny comes out and he's like cold like a corpse and I'm kind of freaked out and he's coming out of surgery and there's the great master and he's like, you know, on the slab. But So he's not just, you know, lying there like half dead, but he's like really cold because uh, the, the surgery is kept cold and everything else they do to make it a sterile environment. And he comes out and, and <laughs> so then when he wakes up and the doctors come around <laughs> and everything and he starts to recover and he recovered quite, quite quickly. And he says, he says, you didn't give me a chance. You didn't warn me, you know, before they put the anesthesia. You know, he wanted, he thought he was going to get warned. He said, okay, here it comes. You know, let's see if you can fight it. And he says, you know, it's like he came up and clobbered me alongside the head. You know, I was gone. <laughs> so he was, he was kind of a little upset that he had, had not been given the chance to see if he could, could overcome, which I don't think he would have, <laughs> the, the, the powerful drugs to put him asleep. So from that point forward, uh, things started to deteriorate more, and and I continued to be with him, and and then came the point where um, he, uh, and then a lot of people blamed, uh, and he, so he stayed in Bangkok for some time, being around doctors and carrying them. People would come and go, and he was you know, kind of more uh, liberal for people coming to see him, and but he was staying with supporters in Bangkok to kind of recover and. Because there was the demand and stuff in, up at his monastery in Ubon, up in the northeast of Thailand, was, was tremendous. And so that he, he um, and then it was, it was finally that, okay, well, it's time to go back. And there's photos here. See him coming back. You see him kind of this procession. And I mean, they're very distinct. I can see them very clearly when he came back. And he wasn't, I don't really believe in the end that this, this uh, this uh, stunt really accomplished anything to, to what I could see. But he came back, 
and of course everybody was was gathered and you know welcoming welcoming him back and it was uh it was quite uh you know lovely to see you know kind of they have their their great venerable father has returned and but everybody was showing up with uh every remedy you could think you know so he had the brain kind of thing and but everybody was showing up with medications herbal remedies and he was an absolute sucker bless his heart forgive me lumpacha but he was a real sucker for these things i mean he just you know oh i got this you know this is and so then like diabetes came up and what he should have and what he should eat and everything of course monitoring diabetes for a for a monk and one meal a day is very difficult to try to and he wasn't taking insulin or anything but i know or i'm convinced that many of these herbal remedies were quite powerful and 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 the thing and i think modern doctors kind of tend to agree that some are open to you know homeopathic remedies and things but it's hard to kind of one of the complaints that i hear and i heard at that is like there's no regulation you know how much is the dosage and what is it and then how much and then so there's not this ability to kind of regulate the the, the dosage so they were giving these remedies and i remember one day they boiled up this thing was for diabetes and you know he knocked it back you know and i i think actually he he uh, his brain got starved to some extent I don't know, but I just thinking back, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, I think that had some impact, you know, because it, it couldn't really know, because then there was a point he really seemed to be less stable, less clear, and we'd say we started to to kind of lose him, where certain things begin to happen, and I don't feel appropriate to say some of the things, but you know, he started to become an old man and get somewhat forgetful and things, and and so it was really. Um, very uh, diff- difficult to observe this and be there, and then be in the middle of people wanting to help him, truly wanting to help him, and 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 so and we had our kind of marching orders from the doctors in Bangkok. So these are his meds and everything. So we had a regiment of medication, but here's people coming in and intervening. And once we were up there, I mean, it was kind of out of my control. I mean, other than you know, like getting a rifle or something and standing at the door. I mean, people were coming, and I just kind of had to back off it at some point. Wow. And and that, so this it had to play itself out. I mean, this was all part of his greatness, his karma, and everything. And so I hope, in some way, you know, I, I, I'm I'm I'm, you know, honored and and humbled to be sharing this this story. And um, so I'd like to continue a little a little longer. And so what happened was, then we got and I, I shared this at some point. Maybe it was the aging weekend. I'm not sure, but. There came the invitation from the uh, uh, the king and queen that inviting him to come back to Bangkok, and he'd already said, "Moi pour you know, I'm done with the doctors, no more, you know, leave me be. And so that was the point where things changed, and he he had said that, but then he no longer was really able to speak for himself. So this invitation came. So the elders met. And made this decision. Um, did I talk about this? Or was that the aging weekend? Did I talk about this already? Did I? Yes. A little bit, huh? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Well, anyway, the decision was 
was made, and it was basically that they, they really didn't feel, it was kind of like them being able to say, no, you can't come and see him, is that they felt that this invitation was coming from the, you know, the, the highest in the land next to the, you know, the Sangharaja, the Supreme Patriarch, of, of, that they really had to, uh, to uh, honor. And so they said, well, we should let him go. And of course, he wasn't in a position to resist. He was really kind of at the, really at the the mercy and the kindness. And and of course, it was all coming from love and kindness and wanting to to do their best. But I remember, and I'm kind of remembered and spoke about, we'll go down in history for this, but it was quite touching and I'd like to share it with you because I kind of forgot about it and people would say it, but it was a very moving moment. So he was less stable, and and sometimes you know just to move forward would be would be difficult. So of course we had uh, um, internal uh, jets, uh, air airline service within Thailand. You know from Ubon to Bangkok, and you could be there like in an hour or something. And the train was like all night, so there was no question that he was gonna we we're gonna fly him to Bangkok. So everybody comes out to see him off and. So we get to, and this was, you know, plane just on a tarmac, and the stairs go up. So we got out, and everybody said goodbye, and so we're getting to the base of the stairs. And he just, he's really reluctant, and I think almost incapable of going up these stairs. And so here I am next to him, trying to encourage him. I was like, oh, Paul, you know, we need to, you know, to go up the stairs. And it was a, I don't even remember that he said, well, I can't do it, or I don't, whatever. And I just said, well, here we go. And I just reached down and picked him up, carried him up the steps, you know, this flight of stairs and into the airplane and put him in his seat. So, of course, that's a quite a, in many people's minds, you know, where, you know, I picked him up and took him onto the plane. And it was, you know, that I would even do such a thing. But it was like, it was very clear. I mean, he wasn't going to make it. There's nobody else was going to do that. They didn't have any means of like, getting him up there on some kind of lift or something, so I had to be the lift. From then on, it, it, it really is, is, there was a period, um, and that some of you may have already faced or may face, that his care and the regulation of medications and everything, he had this you know, suite in the hospital and people would come and it was quite easy to keep uh, tabs on who came, who went, and, and people would come to see him, senior monks would come down and all you know, went fine, but I was getting burnt, big time burnt, you know, and, and I think people were, were afraid of me uh, to a certain extent because, not of my bigness, but I was also very attached to this. I felt, you know, I was the one that, you know, was kind of in charge to some extent and not, you know, there was, there was a certain arrogance there and blindness, but also that was, I had been there from the beginning, so you can imagine my kind of attachment to the situation, wanting to, you know, maintain a certain control and, and influence. And it was very difficult for me to, to, you know, ultimately let that go. But I remember one time we were, and we would feed him and things, and it was getting more difficult for him to eat and things, and, and you know, he'd not want things and stuff. And so there came a period, and uh, this is hard to say, but that he was, he was incredibly resistant. You know, he just was like, no. And I mean, when he said no, it was like, back off. And, and he was quite strong. And so with the medication or with eating and stuff. And there was another monk with me who lived here for a while, Ajahn Bunmurt. 
And if I hadn't had him as my kind of with me, I think I, you know, I, he just was such a support for me. And so if I had to kind of have a break, I just, he came in and was able to do it. But I remember this one time that, you know, as, as this relationship had been on for all these years and the humility and everything, that he pushed, you know, something in me that I didn't like. You know, I got very, very cross with him and, you know, angry. And I never feared I would ever do anything, but I know as I went, I says, well, you got to go in there. You know, I was like, you know, you old so-and-so, I'm going to pick you up and throw you out the window. <laughs> you know, I was like so distraught that he was being that way. And he wasn't himself, whatever that was. This was not something, although there maybe was a part just trying to say, you know, I, I really want to be left alone. And, and so you can imagine the confusion and everything that that I felt, and so it was, it was terribly difficult and, and quite traumatic. So eventually we came back, and they had built this wonderful uh, um, purpose-built kind of clinic. It was all self-contained, it had a kitchen, it had his room all set up with a hospital bed, and the, you know, just like a hospital. You know, beautiful, uh, you know, bathroom with rails and everything to look after someone elderly, and it was kind of, you know, it contained from the rest of this this little house. It was on one story, so everything was was really perfect for his um, his care. And I don't remember exactly how much longer I stayed I stayed on, but I know I think back. And I feel very humbled and honored that that what I how I helped set that up and and the the peace that I had in it that um, you know I felt I really kind of set it up for a routine to begin and for the next ten years to unfold and for his his care and the care was just incredible it was just. He, we never had to use a catheter or even, you know, they'd sometimes for a male they'd use a condom and a, and a, a catheter tube. We never had to do that. Why? Because there was always two monks, no less than two monks with him all the time. So if he even, you know, trickled a little bit, I mean, you had, and he'd move and the, and the urinal, you know, the male urinal would move with him. And, and if, you know, there was anything, it was cleaned. And he was cleaned, and it went out and came back. And so the care, he just, I mean, if you can imagine it, he just had like this perfect care, this, such love. And everything was always with reverence looking after this, this, this great teacher, this great master. And so, um, and so it was hard for him not to live because of all this, this care. I mean, a bed sore, I mean, don't talk about a bed sore, even a, a little hint of it because he, We'd turn him, and everything was kept clean. And I mean, he just had this this perfect care. But in the end, it was it was somewhat sad because to actually feed him, they got these big syringes in the end and put this these tubes at the end of the syringes, and everything would be um, um, uh, osterized into you know to mush, so they could feed him. So they you got good at like feeding him. You know, you'd have these big syringes, and you kind of. <laughs> some of the funny commercials, you'd kind of come in and say, all right, here's another bite. You squirt it in his mouth, but you had to be just right or you cause him to choke. So there was a lot of skill in getting him to eat without putting the tube in and everything. But um, uh, So when I left, he was still 
voluntarily eating and and but was not communicative in in a verbal way and so where he was consciously I don't even want to speculate because because I really don't know but what I believe is that this period of time it was like you know, almost a sacrifice on his part to to even though he had said no that the community said yes and so it had these whole uh, 10 years for disciples that never even met him and that came, young monks that came that probably never even heard him speak live were there to look after the great master and have that, that honor and that blessing to do that. So uh, that he had this, this care that was just um, incredible. I, I think it's in kind of historically probably one of those rare things that happens to a, a great person like this and even you take, like, in a worldly sense, a king or a queen, that there would be people, but there was there was no one there that didn't come with love in their hearts and, and the best of intentions. So, and there was no gain. I mean, it wasn't like, well, you know, we'll pay you a lot of money. You know, money, as I, I've, I said before, it could not buy the amount of love and, and care and tenderness that was given to him. And the kind of final act that I that I did for him is when I was had moved here then and left and gone through that trauma of leaving and Ajahn Sumedho encouraged me for and he knew I was burnt out but he knew I had to be ready and so I was and I came and and uh, had seven more very good years of monastic life but there was a point where um, we d- decided to uh, I, I did the research on a wheelchair for him we did a, an Everest and Jennings and I. I don't know, I'm thinking computer, but we didn't have that in those days. So I don't know how I did the research, but I got materials and stuff and looked through. It was one of the things I enjoy doing. So we got this, like, this just perfect wheelchair. You know, it had every gadget. It wasn't, you know, that you could care for an elderly person. You know, it'd go up and down. It had a commode seat built in. It'd go back. It could lie down. It could sit up. It could half lie, half sit, you know. And, this. and so we got this whole thing together and put it together, and we, you know, raised the money for it. We got it. And so then it was like I said to, you know, saying to, to Ajahn Sumedho, I said, I, you know, I'm going to have to do a video. This is, this is com- complicated, you know, this wheelchair. So I think, you know, we need to do a video or something so I can talk and go through it and how to use it. Well, Ajahn Sumedho, bless his heart, and he, he, he thought about that. And maybe it was just the next day or whatever. And he says, well, you know, Pabakaro, he said, there's, there's been enough money here that you could actually accompany the wheelchair to Thailand. You know, and I was like, oh, you know, how perfect, you know, I'd kind of put this together and, you know, what an honor to carry this great offering to the master to, in Thailand. And so it was wonderful because I brought it, got it there and unpacked it and showed the monks. And, you know, it was it was perfect. It was everything, you know, I just he couldn't not. It was like the perfect meditation. You know, he couldn't like be. But if we wanted him perfectly straight, he was perfectly straight. You know, if we wanted him half back, he was half back. So. So, but yet it was it was so comfortable and and for his care and and uh, and looking after him and of course he wasn't wasn't walking at that point and 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 needed such a, a kind of um, uh, piece of equipment to be instrumental in in his care and, and well being. So that was kind of my final act, and that was my final trip until he died many years. Later, because I came back here and stayed until 1991, and then he died. Was it, it was 92, right? January then? 92. January 92 on my on my birthday was January 16th, 
And um, so I went back for his funeral then a year later. Um, so that, you know, I hope in some way this is, is uh, the story has never been told, and I don't mean that in any, in just from the deepest humility in my heart. And, uh, and Anjad had encouraged me, and I was thinking, I says, I don't know if I want to talk about this, and I, and I don't know. It wasn't anything other than I'm not sure how well I can piece it together and what parts to so to uh, you know to to weave in and and so on. But I I certainly um, uh, feel that uh, I think it's important to to know kind of the human side of of what went on that we everyone here can can relate to in, in his care and love and and each of us in our way has has this love and and care for for people that we care about and care for and can uh, that we need to make decisions and choices and of course that maybe that's an, uh, an, uh, an example of some of the most complex and as complex as it, as it may get but that um, it all unfolded and and uh, that he, he, when he died, and I, I've never really heard the, the kind of final days of his life. I know he was in pretty rough shape, and in the end, and so we might, one might argue that, oh well, you know, they really kept him going longer than he wished. They wished to, and everything. And but that point where they said, well, let's go back to Bangkok for the king and queen's doctors. That was kind of that was the point. And I think that's important to note that there was there was no turning back. Then at what point you're going to? It's kind of like when do you shut off the machine, kind of thing. Who's going to make that decision? And so these are very, you know, these are literally life and death kind of uh, situations that that we all will face with our loved ones and our, ourselves. And so in the context of this uh, this wonderful period of time we're sharing together on these very pressing matters of, of, of uh, birth, aging, illness, and, and death, that uh, I hope that everyone is, is compelled to look more deeply and to put one's affairs in, in order as, as much as, as possible. I've been trying to call my mother, and, and I'm not sure what I'm going to say, and, and I know she could, I could get a text, an uh, uh, email, whatever, from my sister. And you know, It's not like it's touch and go, kind of, she's at that point. But it could. It's just she's at that point in her, in her life. So I was feeling the context of the retreat, and it's really hard to time it because when she gets up and this assisted living and the time here and the kind of energy I have after, you know, a day long. So the best time to give my mother as a call is after everything's happened here, like nine thirty or ten o'clock. And of course, I'm just full of energy to call my mother. So, but I've been trying to. I tried earlier today, and just to wanting to say hi and see if there was anything I could say other than just checking in with her and tell her I love her. So um, I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you for, for uh, being here and for uh, bearing witness to, uh, to this, this, this story. And I give it with great uh, respect and honor to you know, a great teacher who all of us revere in some way, those of us that were very blessed to be in his presence for uh, a time and that uh, he lives on in all of us, just like the Buddha does, and uh, the teachings and uh, what we've been uh, been given. So, thank you.